Take our Bibles tonight and be turning to the book of Psalms. We're going to read a few verses in Psalm 12. For the last few Sunday evenings, we've been having a series of lessons on where we got our Bible. And a hundred years ago, uh, this wasn't even an issue because there was really only one English Bible at that time, basically. And now there are hundreds and hundreds of Bibles in the English language. And remarkably, um, a lot of them say a lot of different things. And so if we're going to have a Bible, we want to have a Bible we can rely upon, a Bible that we can be confident is the Word of God. And so we've had several lessons, and sometimes... So if you haven't been here for those, some of those lessons, you can listen to them on the internet, online. Someone just this morning was telling me they listened to last Sunday night's lesson message on the canon of Scripture having to do with what, what books made it into the Bible. There were other writings being written in the Old Testament time and the New Testament time, but the translators did not deem them to be the Word of God, and there's reasons why. So last week we talked about that. So if you miss one of these lessons, you can listen to it on the internet and and try to keep up. Tonight we're going to talk about a very important topic, and that's the preservation of the Scripture. We've talked about the inspiration of the Scripture two Sundays ago. talked about the canon of the Scripture last Sunday. And tonight we're going to talk about the preservation, and you'll understand what that word means as it pertains to the Scripture as we move along. So we're going to read in Psalm 12. And if, you'd, if you're able to stand, would you stand with us for the reading of the Word of God? And let's read verses 6 and 7 at this time, and then we'll pray. Psalm 112 and verse 6. This is what the Bible says. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of fire... Purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now we're going to come back to this passage in a little bit, but this is a good place to begin because we're the psalmist, the writer here, David. By the way, he understood when he was writing that he was writing under divine inspiration. And as he's writing this, he's talking about the words of the Lord, not just the ideas, the thoughts of the Lord, but the words of the Lord are pure words. And they're pure words because they're God's words, not man's words, but God's words. And he says they've been tried in a furnace of fire, purified seven times, completely pure, without impurity, And then notice what verse 7 says before we pray. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Thus we're talking about the preservation of God's word. And let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And we thank you that we've had just a good service thus far, singing praises to your name, seeing people follow the Lord in baptism, enjoying the special music of these children. It's just been good to be here. We pray you'd continue to bless as we just look at this uh, 
subject tonight and help us to understand the relevance of it and help us to understand the process of it and help us most of all to understand the promise of it as we see here in Psalm 12. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a critical subject. Now, the inspiration of Scripture, that that the words of God were given by divine inspiration, which means that God gave them to human instruments. That inspiration is a doctrine in the Bible. It's a very important doctrine, but this But this also is an important doctrine. The doctrine of inspiration teaches us, and this is what the Bible teaches, that God himself gave his word, word for word, to man. And most people believe that. But but if that be true, and it is true, where is that inspired word? If God gave his word, word for word... Inspired of God to man, where is that inspired word? I've found uh, in my personal experience, looking on church's um, uh, doctrinal statements, or looking at doctrinal statements of colleges, Christian colleges, Bible colleges, a statement similar to what I'm about to read. We believe... In the divinely inspired, verbal, that means word for word, plenary, which just means all, the word of God. We believe in the divinely inspired, verbal, plenary word of God in the original manuscripts. Now that's, a, that's an interesting statement. The problem is, where are the original manuscripts? And the answer is, they don't exist. So to say we believe in the inspired Word of God in the original manuscripts, that does not mean we have the Word of God today because the original manuscripts, some of them written thousands of years ago, we have no record, we have no copies of those manuscripts. Divine preservation, as we see here in Psalms 12, teaches that God promised to preserve His words. God promised that. And as we talked about inspiration, the confidence we have in preservation is not in mankind who were God's instruments that God used in the process, but my confidence is in the God of the Bible who promised to preserve His Word. So the question is not, were the Scriptures perfect when they were given? We, I think we would all agree the Bible clearly teaches that. But here's the question for tonight, is God's Word preserved for us? Now, this may seem like a strong statement, but inspiration without preservation is practically meaningless. We want a Bible. This is what Jesus said. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. We want a Bible that we can trust in every word of the Bible. Now, Lord willing, next week we're going to talk about the translation process. And how the translators who gave us this Bible recognized manuscripts as being completely reliable, all agreeing unanimously, and how some manuscripts were rejected at that time, and yet some of those faulty manuscripts are the source of many of our modern Bibles. It's an important thing to think about. 
So in our text here, we see the promise of preservation. Just to repeat, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, and as we emphasized earlier, it says in verse 7, Thou shalt keep them. Thou, God, will keep them. He will preserve them from this generation forever. We'll look at a couple other passages as we get into this tonight. Uh, Psalm 100 says in verse 5, His truth endureth to all generations. God's truth will never, ever fade away or falter. In a Psalm, if you're in Psalm, go to Psalm 78. And here the psalmist talks about God's Word, the value of God's Word, and how it would be protected and preserved. Psalm 78 and verse 1, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Psalm 78 and verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He, talking about the Lord, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. He gave His word, which He commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. God promised over the course of thousands of years that He would preserve and protect His Word. He made this promise on numerous occasions. Turn to the right a little bit from Psalm to Isaiah 59, if you would. Isaiah chapter 59, just a few select verses that underscore these promises of God's preservation of His Word. In Isaiah 59, let's just read the last verse of that chapter. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit is upon thee, and my words, which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, your descendants, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, their descendants, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever." My words, the words that I give you, will not just be good for you and your children, but they'll be good from henceforth and forever. Let's go to the New Testament for a moment. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35. Jesus gives us a great promise about preservation here. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But my words shall not pass away. We ought to be able to trust the words of Jesus, shouldn't we? He said, my words shall never pass away. Shall not pass away. Go to the end of Matthew, the very last chapter, the last few verses. Something that we are familiar to, with generally and refer to occasionally. And that's often called the Great Commission, the Assignment the Lord gave His churches. 
And this is after his resurrection, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. He's giving us this, uh, the marching orders to his, his churches. And this is what he said in Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Go to every corner of the earth, teach all nations. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. Amen. The churches are commanded by Jesus to teach disciples everything, all the things he commanded us. Now, first on the surface, that's, a, that's an important command to consider, isn't it? But on the subject of preservation, we ask the question, if, if, if we're going to do what Jesus told us to do, teach them everything He taught us, then those things He taught us must be preserved. Right? Go with me, if you would, to a passage that we've used several times in this series already. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and... I know we're looking at up a lot of verses, and if you're having a hard time keeping up with us, you could maybe just jot down the references, but we want to see what the Bible says about this subject tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing, this is his second epistle to Timothy, his son in the faith, and this is what he writes in verse 15. He says, and that from a child, talking about to Timothy, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures. I have those words underlined in my Bible. The Holy Scriptures. Talking about the Word of God. By the way, what Scriptures would Timothy have been able to know and have access to? The only Scriptures he would have would be the Old Testament Scriptures. I I saw an article in a periodical uh, this week. And the the subject of the article was... we ought to read the Bible that Jesus read. And you know what Bible Jesus read? He read the Old, script, the Old Testament. If it's good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for us, right? Read the Bible Jesus read. He says, well, I just don't like that Old Testament. Well, it's the Holy Scriptures. So verse 15 says, And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's the only salvation there is. Faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now when Paul wrote this to Timothy, there were New Testament epistles that had been, read, been written, and were being circulated. But he, he's, when he says all Scripture, he's including the Old Testament Scriptures. Timothy had the Scriptures. Now, keep this in mind. It's simple, but it's important. Timothy did not have the original manuscripts. But he, but he had the Scriptures. He had the Holy Scriptures. He had the Word of God. And the day that he read this, what he was reading, what Timothy would have been reading, and what Paul would have been reading, and what Jesus read from the scriptures when Jesus in Luke chapter 4 stood in the synagogue at Nazareth and he read from the 
book of Isaiah, he read the scriptures, they, were re- they weren't reading, none of those were reading the original autographs, the original scriptures. They were reading copies of copies of copies, but those copies, according to the Bible, are called the Holy Scriptures. So, the promise we have from God is that he would preserve his word. And by the way, preservation is not just a biblical doctrine and a biblical promise, but it's, it's logical. We don't base our belief on logic, but it's a logical doctrine. I mean, why would God give his word to us, his inspired word to us? Why would he take meticulous care that the very words that he gave were perfectly recorded, which is what inspiration teaches us, and then not keep them accurately preserved for us. It's a logical doctrine. So let's look a little bit tonight at some history, the history of preservation. We'll talk about the Old Testament first, and then we'll talk about the New Testament. And, and I know, and I've said this a couple of times in this series, for some people, they may not think this is important, and, and I'm not saying it is the most important thing we'll ever give time to, but it's definitely important because somewhere along the line, you might be challenged to question, do I really have the best Bible there is? And that's an important question to ask. And, and let me just say this, and I don't say this to be critical or derogatory, but a lot of people never even think about that. They just go to the bookstore, they get the Bible that has the right font and the largest print and pictures, and they say they're all the same. But as I heard someone say many years ago about that subject, things that are different are not the same. So we want to know why we have the Bible we have. How did we get the Bible that we have? Where do these Old Testament scriptures that we call the Old Testament our Bible, where do they come from? The first thing I want to say is, and I'll look at a couple of verses for this, it was the responsibility, and we'll see this in the Bible, it was the responsibility of the Levitical priesthood to guard, to protect, and to preserve the scriptures. It was the job the assignment, the privilege of the prophets to write these scriptures, these inspired scriptures. But it wasn't their job to make sure those scriptures are cared for. It was the job of the Levitical priesthood. Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy, and we could go to several places, but I want to just notice a couple of references about this subject this evening. Deuteronomy, first of all, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, and by the way, if you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book of the Bible, the last of what's often called the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Bible. Moses wrote these books, and as the book of Deuteronomy unfolds, he's kind of giving an a, uh, overview, a summary of how God has dealt with Israel and how he's dealt with his people, beginning, of course, from the creation of man. But in Deuteronomy 17, he's going to talk a little bit about the king. If you look in verse um, 14, it says, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are above me. So he's talking about when you have a, when you, one day you'll have a king. And this is what I want to get to. Look in verse 18. And it shall be when he, the king, sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book 
out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and keep all the words of this law, and these statutes to do them. So we see here again that the, it was clear when Moses was recording this, that there was a plan to keep God's law protected, preserved, and it was the job of the priests, the Levites, to be custodians over the Word of God. Go with you also in Deuteronomy to chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31. And one thing we'll see in just a moment, because a person could think, well, how do you know these people took this seriously? I mean, how do you know that they were as careful as they should be about this? And we'll... We'll just talk about that in a moment. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 24. And it came to pass, when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book, until they were finished, he completely recorded all the words that Moses commanded the Levites, there we have these priests again, which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. So here again we see that God has promised to keep his word forever, for generations uh, and generations. And he's given the job of the priest to keep his word. And again, my confidence is not in the priests. My confidence is in the Lord who gave the promise. So if you've ever read anything, and this is a very interesting uh, study about the, 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 the process that the copiers, those who copied the scripture, the Jewish scribes copied and preserved the scriptures, it's, it's a remarkable, a really a remarkable thing. And the reason is because they were so uh, committed to the accuracy of the Word of God. And one of the things that that resulted from that, though, is because there is a a scarcity of the copies because they were so particular about it. I'm going to give you just a few of those rules to illustrate what we're talking about. When they, these were rules, you you can see these lists of things in any number of places. But here's some of the rules the scribes used in copying. No word or letter could ever be written down by memory. Every time they were made copies of the scripture, there had to be an authentic manuscript before them, and they had to read and pronounce each word out loud as they were writing out, copying the word of God. Their pens would be wiped reverently each time the word God was written. They would clean their pen out of respect for his name. Before they wrote his name Jehovah, they would actually wash themselves entirely every time before they wrote the name Jehovah. They had strict laws regarding, rules regarding the use of the pen, the shaping and spacing of letters. 
between each letter, they're hand they're handwriting this. Between each letter, there was a hair's breadth between each letter. Between each section of scripture, there was the breadth of nine consonants. Each word and each letter would be counted. If one letter of the manuscript was missing, or if one letter had been added, they would count every letter of every chapter of every book. And if one letter was missing, or if one letter touched another letter, the entire manuscript would be destroyed. The Jewish people highly venerated, honored, respected the copies of the Old Testament. Now, sometimes a person in our culture, in our generation, would hear these things and say, well, you know, what's the big deal? It's just the Bible, right? But those Jewish people, Paul said this in Romans uh, chapter 8, I believe, that God committed the oracles of the Scriptures unto these people. They took it seriously. And... By the way, we ought to take the Bible seriously. Until recent times, from with the Old Testament preservation now, until recent times, the earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament were dated about A.D. 895. Those were the oldest manuscripts. But, so all we have is copies of copies of copies of copies. You probably know, though, that amazing discovery was made in 1947 in Qumran, a place on the northwestern coast of the Dead Sea. And in a cave in Qumran, they found 500 documents. 500 documents that were dated hundreds of years before Christ. Now, before this time... The, old, the, the earliest manuscripts we had was 895 A.D. These, these hundreds of documents were hundreds of years before Christ. And hundreds of those copies included almost every book of the Old Testament in Hebrew. They became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many of you have heard of that. My wife and I were in Israel some years ago. We went to Qumran. We went to a museum there at that cave where these scrolls were found. By the way, the writings were not on paper like we have in the Old Testament time. They were often written on animal skins. Uh, some of y'all will remember when Jewel Smith visited our church uh, many years ago, and he had a presentation where he had all these ancient Bibles and even some manuscripts on display. It's really, it was a display worth hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. When I picked him up at the airport, he had a scroll of an animal skin that was probably about, I'm guessing, four or five foot tall. He, he wouldn't commit it to anything. He carried it. It was the book of Esther written on an animal skin. And that's the way many of these scrolls were. They found these scrolls in this cave in Qumran, And included in that, one of the most amazing parts of that discovery was a scroll with the book of Isaiah on it. Almost completely intact. 
the entire book of Isaiah virtually identical to our King James Bible. It's a great discovery. Um, fast forward from the time that those were actually, uh, some of those were actually uh, copied uh, to the year about 500 A.D. And there was a family of Jewish scholars who were called the Masoretes. That's where we get the Masoretic text. About 500 A.D., this family took upon themselves the responsibility of copying the Old Testament scriptures, those, those, all the available ancient manuscripts. And their work the, became the primary text for the Old Testament in our King James Bible, translated in 1611. So how were these, how were these words of God preserved in the Old Testament era? They were guarded by the Levitical priest. It was their assignment, their responsibility to do that. They were, they were copied with meticulous care by these scribes who had these stringent rules upon them. Now, something we'll talk about next week is, you know, do all those old manuscripts perfectly agree? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, some of them actually came from, the translations actually came from corrupt manuscripts. We'll talk about that next week. So how was it preserved in the Old Testament we've talked about? Second of all, how was it preserved in the New Testament time? And now unlike the Old Testament manuscripts, there are thousands upon thousands of partial or uh, more than partial ancient manuscripts. Uh, one, one scholar, as is, is, uh, long ago as 1968, said there were over 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts. By the way, in case you may not realize this, the Old Testament was translated in the Hebrew language. The New Testament was translated, or not translated, was given in the uh, Greek language. It was the primary language of the day in the first century. Five, there are 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts. Could just be a chapter, we would call it chapters. Could just be a few verses. Could be an entire book. There's many as 10,000 Latin manuscripts. Not like the Old Testament. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of manuscripts. And, and the, the reason this is important, because it was from those manuscripts that one day the Bible would eventually be translated into the English language. It's where we want to get to. Because... That's the Bible we have. Other than those 10,000 Latin and 5,000 Greek, there, he estimated there were 9,000 manuscripts of all kinds in various languages. Another, another scholar estimated that there are over 4,000 ancient Greek manuscripts in excess of 15,000 in Latin. They're not held all in one place. They're in museums in different places all around the world. Not all of those texts are reliable. But you can imagine if you've got 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, let's say, various portions of Scripture, and you compare them and group them and study them together, you're going to come to a definite, certain answer about the text. That's what we'll talk about next week. Let's go, if we could, to uh, 1 Timothy 
chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we'll wrap things up here. I want to just give an example of of how Paul, the apostle, by the way, he was just a man. He was just a mortal. But God entrusted him with the words of the majority of our New Testament, right? He gave us most of our New Testament. He was just a man, but he was a man that God dealt with directly, personally, and inspired the writings of numerous epistles, including this one, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I want to use this as an example. If you look in verse 18, please. It says, For the Scripture saith... Now, I don't always, you know, when I read that phrase, just perk up and pay attention, but usually I do. When he says the Scripture saith, he's talking about writings that have previously been written, right? He's talking about what he has read. So he says in verse... Uh, 18, for the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. So he attributes two statements in that verse to what the scripture says. The scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, if you were to, you could do this when you go home. You could do a, re, a search on this, these phrases. But that phrase, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn, is taken from the book of Deuteronomy. We read from that earlier. He's, re, he's referring, he had the book of Deuteronomy. He's referring to that book. And he says, the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. But what about the second part of that verse where it says, the laborer is worthy of his reward. That's a verse from the gospel of Luke. Where Luke is writing his gospel. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And you will know that Luke was one of the closest companions in Paul's travels. And so, here Paul, in writing, says that the Old Testament Scripture gives us this this, uh, wisdom, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And then he says, another portion of wisdom, the laborers worthy of his hire, was taken from Luke which he also calls the Holy Scripture. Now, what Paul recognized that was that, and by the way, that, that tells us that when Paul wrote this, Luke had already written and his writings were being circulated. Or Paul was with him when he's writing this, but this is not minor. Paul recognized not only was Luke's, uh, the, Moses' writings were Scripture, but he recognized that Luke's writings were Scripture. And this would have been about 63 A.D. or 64 A.D. So, you know, you or I could look at this question and say, well, and by the way, there are a lot of skeptics, there are a lot of scoffers. You know, people would rather cast doubt on something than try to find out the source or the truth about it. 
But to me, if Jesus called these writings scriptures, and the Apostle Paul called these writings scriptures, then I think we're in good company if we call these writings scriptures. And it's from these manuscripts, from these texts, written in the original language of Hebrew and Greek, that eventually the translators began the work of translating the Bible from the original languages. Now, they didn't, they didn't originally go from the Hebrew and Greek originally to the English because there was Latin Bibles, there were other Bibles that were being translated. And, you know, this is a subject, I've said this, I think, more than once in this series, that if you wanted to, you could spend a lifetime studying this subject. I'm not a scholar, but I can study, I can read, I can look at reliable sources. And, but it is, it is a fascinating study for me. And I don't expect anybody to remember everything we're saying, but what I'm hoping is for this, and I'm praying for is this, that from these lessons, both the scriptural background, the historical background, that it will help us understand where we got our Bible. And next week, Lord willing, like I said, we're going to deal with the source, where these corrupt texts came from, where's the line that they, they came from, and where did the modern Bibles come from. And I hope you'll be, I hope you'll be here because it, it's a remarkable thing when you take two or three Bibles and you look at them side by side and you say, not only are certain things said differently, but entire verses are left out. That's a pretty serious issue, isn't it? I remember this well many years ago. I was uh, sitting in a living room and I was uh, talking to a family there about the gospel. And I don't remember all the details. I don't remember who the person was. But I remember I was going to talk to them about baptism and I didn't have my Bible on me. And I said, could I borrow your Bible for a minute? And I was going to look at that passage in Acts chapter 8, uh, where the Ethiopian eunuch got saved and was being baptized. And, and, and I, the verse that I went to look at, in my, it was in my Bible. I knew my Bible. But when I went to look at it, it wasn't in their Bible. It was quite an alarming thing for them. I said, you need to think about what Bible you're using, because you got some parts missing. It's an important subject, isn't it? It's an important subject. Things that are different are not the same. So God promised. This is not imagined. This is not hype. God promised in His Word that His Word that He gave us through the miracle of inspiration came directly from Him. Amen. And in the same book, God promised that he would preserve his word. And he's done that for us. And I thank God for it tonight. Amen? Amen.